Ecclesiastes chapter number four. Ecclesiastes chapter four, if you have your Bibles with you. It is uh, no surprise to anyone uh, to hear this statement that in the United States we enjoy a higher standard of living than almost any other nation. That's no secret. Um, The only time that that is a real shock to us is when we go to a third world country that is nowhere close to the standard living of living that we have. And we see uh, exactly how the rest of the world really does live. We have a high standard of living. But here's a question for you. How do you measure standard of living? Someone would say, well, I I would think, you know, uh, I would look at the average salaries of the people in a given country, and that probably uh, figures into it. You might say, well, I I would look at the prices of things in a given nation, but that could be kind of skewed. I mean, we're paying paying $350 a gallon for gas here, or, well, about $380 a gallon for gas in Georgia. In California, it's almost $5 a gallon. Could be skewed. I guess if you take an average of it, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, nations determine or measure standard of living by something they call the gross domestic product. The gross domestic product is the market value of all goods and services. The sum total of the market value of all goods and services in a country over a given period of time. In the United States of America, our gross domestic product for uh, the last full year, 2010, is $14.6 trillion. That is the total sum of all the goods and services, the value of the goods and services in the United States over the course of a 12-month period that was the year 2010. We were the second uh, worldwide, the number one area, which really, uh, when, when, I, when, when I tell you this, you'll, you'll realize it's a little bit skewed. The European Union gross domestic product was higher than the United States, even though no single nation within the European Union came close to the United States. But as a union, the European Union was higher than the United States. No one comes to a very close third at all. China even though it is growing rapidly, only has a gross domestic product somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 trillion to $7 trillion. We're at $14.6 trillion gross domestic product. In Britain, I read this just uh, this week actually, in Great Britain, the Prime Minister David Cameron has decided that gross domestic product is an insufficient measurement of his people. And it's not that he's thrown it away, but he has added to it something that he has called happynomics. Not economics, but happynomics. And he has hired in their government people who go out, kind of like census workers, and they are asking people, uh, citizens of Great Britain, certain questions like, 
How happy did you feel yesterday? How anxious did you feel yesterday? How satisfied are you with your life nowadays? To what extent do you feel the things you do in your life are really worthwhile? Questions like that. And granted, if you listen to those, they're very subjective. It's very hard to get an objective uh, measurement using questions like that. But he gives his people in Great Britain a scale of 1 to 10. And they are to take all of those questions, which really are happiness quotient questions, happiness questions, and they're to, to assign a level. Well, uh, uh, how satisfied do I, do I feel, did I feel with just yesterday? Uh, seven on a scale of one to ten. And they go down all these questions. And what they're doing is they're, they're compiling all of this data in order to make a determination as to how happy their people are. Keep in mind, Great Britain is in the European Union. They enjoy the highest gross domestic product as a European Union, the British being a part of of any area, any group of nations on the planet. And yet, what David Cameron had found, and something that you already knew, and I'm sure he already knew it too, was that gross domestic product that is high, does not always equate, in fact, it rarely equates to the happiness and the well-being of its people. And so he wanted to know where they were on a happiness level and what they might be able to do to change any levels of unhappiness in their population. Now, In Christian circles, when we get kind of spiritual, or we get to thinking we're kind of spiritual, we kind of look down on the idea of happiness. Because after all, God is more concerned with your your and my holiness than with our happiness. That's a true statement. He is concerned more with our holiness than our happiness. He's concerned more with our righteousness than with our rights. But it doesn't mean that he has no concern for our rights or for happiness of God's people. Jesus did say, I've come to give you life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, he didn't say happiness, but I can't help but think that happiness has something to do with abundant life. And our nation's founding documents says we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights among them, life, liberty and say it. Evidently, we believe in that. It would not be uh, unusual for us to realize that being happy is something very important to us. It's important to Americans. It's important to the British. It's important to most anybody around, even though we might define it differently. This is not something new. It is something that has been around for a long, long time. In fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes is on a search for happiness. I want you to look with me in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. We're going to see how in his search for happiness, he, he talks about friends. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless 
a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I love the book of Ecclesiastes although it's probably not the best book in the world to read through if you're discouraged or if you tend toward depression. But it is a great book, and it is an honest book, much like Job that we touched on this morning. Ecclesiastes is a journal written by a man, may have been Solomon, not quite sure, but it was the journal of a man in midlife crisis. And if you've ever been in maybe not midlife crisis, but some sort of transitional crisis, you know that one of the things that is so predominant in a transitional crisis is this issue of happiness. Transitions are times when we stop and we turn and look back in retrospect at our lives. And we try to evaluate whether or not we believe that the life that we have lived thus far has been worthwhile or have we wasted our time. Engaging uh, the answer to those questions, we then turn around and we look ahead at our future and we try to make adjustments according to what we think would make life better than it has been heretofore. So a midlife crisis. This man, in examining his midlife crisis, looked back on his life up to that point and had determined that he had lived life worthlessly. He had wasted his life and everything that he'd ever done had left him without any sense of happiness whatsoever. And so he determined to go on a journey seeking happiness. In chapter one, he looks in the room of wisdom. Wisdom ought to be a good place, you'd think, to find happiness. Wisdom is talked about a lot in the Proverbs. In fact, wisdom is the key, the key concept in the book of Proverbs. The writer of Ecclesiastes went into the, the room of wisdom, and he, while he found it useful, he found it devoid of happiness. He said it was like chasing the wind. Couldn't catch it. Then, in chapter 2, he leaves the room of wisdom, and he dabbles in the library of divers pleasures. He travels to Vegas. Not literally, but in his mind and in his actions, he travels to places like Vegas and he tries to find happiness in the place of pleasures. But he found that he ended up in misery. In the latter part of chapter 2, he looks for happiness in his work. I know a lot of people who are looking for happiness in their their work. They immerse themselves in their jobs. Sometimes they do it by choice. Sometimes they do it because their supervisors or their bosses or the employer forces them to be immersed in their work. But people are immersing themselves in work, looking for happiness there. This man, at the end of chapter 2, looked for happiness in his work. But again, he found that happiness is elusive at work. In chapter 5, he searches for happiness among riches and possessions. 
He was a wealthy man. But he found that even though he had money and he had possessions and he was considered very wealthy, when he looked at his happiness account, it was overdrawn. There was nothing there. Surveys tell us that people who have more money are somewhat happier than everybody else, but only to the extent that they don't have to worry about being out of a dollar. There's never a time, they think, when they won't have money to buy something. At least they don't have that problem with happiness. But in, in terms of finding true, deep down in the gut fulfillment, even the money runs them out. And this man found that to be true. If you were to look at chapter 6 through 10, this same writer making this journal, writing this journal through midlife, he compares and he contrasts the places that he's been so far. Some he concludes are better than others. He concludes that wisdom was better than pleasures, even though wisdom did not provide him the happiness he wanted. He decided that work was better than pleasures, even though still, even in work, he didn't find the happiness that he wanted. So, What he basically had done up through chapter 10 was he had gone to several different places looking for happiness. None of them brought him happiness. And so he said, well, uh, even though I'm out of happiness, I'm going to weigh these different places I've been to figure out which ones are better, even though none of them provide me happiness. Then in the final chapter, chapter 12, he concludes, and, and if you read chapter 12, it's almost with an air of disappointment. He concludes with an air of disappointment, disappointed resignation that the best you can get in this life in terms of happiness and fulfillment is found in a relationship with God in in which you obey him. And that's his conclusion. As he's looking for happiness and as he's trying to find it, one of the places that he looks and, and finds some satisfaction is in relationships. I really appreciated Kenny's prayer a few minutes ago. Uh, I felt the Lord's presence in that prayer. But I also liked the fact that he talked about the importance of Christian friends and the impact that our friends have on our lives and how they help us through troubles in life. The writer of Ecclesiastes looked in chapter 4 at this prospect of friends. He concludes that true happiness is going to be ultimately found in a relationship with God, but he, when, when he stops at the place of friendship in chapter 4, he doesn't decide to throw it away. He never says that that's just chasing the wind. He never leaves the idea that it is important to have close, Christian, godly friends. In chapter 4, He tells us some things about friendship that I want to take us through. First thing I want you to note, and this is something we've said before, he finds that in in looking for happiness, friendships are essential. Friends are essential. He says that he saw saw a a picture. He, He was observing other people's lives as he was trying to find happiness in his own life. And as he was observing someone else's life, he noticed that there was someone, there was a man, he says in chapter 4, verse 8, who was all alone. He didn't have a son or a brother. How he knew that, we don't know. But he didn't have a son or brother. Although he did have a job. For uh, verse, uh, the middle part of verse 8 says, there was no end to his toil or his labor, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So he had a job and he had wealth. 
And he asked the question of himself, for what am I toiling and why am I depriving myself of all this enjoyment? All of this is misery. He had no friends. And then he says in verse 9, two are better than one. Good friends are essential. Number two, good friends accomplish more than any of us could accomplish on our own. Verse number nine, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. When we moved down here in the fall of 2000 from coming, I had been given by a friend in our former church, I had been given an antique piano. You remember that, Merrill? I had been given an antique piano. Uh, it's an upright Steinway piano. It was, uh, I, I took the serial number and I figured out that it, it was constructed in 1894. And it's built of solid oak. And that bad boy was heavy. And so uh, it took six strong men to take that piano out of my house and load it on a truck. And those men uh, had back problems for several years after they had loaded that thing on. One person could not budge it. In fact, it was all I could do to push it, and I couldn't push it very far at all. Two people still could not pick it up. Three people, no, four, they could probably get it to lean one way or the other, but they could not pick it up without hurting themselves. took six of us, six big guys, to move that piano. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that there are some some, uh, antique Steinway-weighted problems that you and I will face in life that we cannot manage without friends. Good friends accomplish more than a person alone can accomplish. Number three, good friends protect each other. Verse 10, he says, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. When I read this verse, I thought about uh, Jerry Watson and I. Jerry Watson is uh, Ken and Sarah Russell's deacon in the deacon family ministry. And He and I were over at Southern Regional Hospital this past week when Sarah was to have her surgery. We were waiting in the waiting room with their son, Ken Jr. And there were a lot of people in that waiting room at Southern Regional. Over to the far left of the room, there was a lady there. She looked to be in her mid to late 60s. And she had a walker there. And she was seated and she managed to pull herself up and she was headed toward what she, she was headed in the direction of the ladies restroom when all of a sudden she stopped. And she rocked. And she fell backwards. Immediately, there were five or six different people in that room who saw it and gasped and rushed over to her. We started to pick her up, and a nurse who happened to be there says, do not, do not, do not pick her up. And they brought in some folks, medical personnel, who were strong enough to lift her and knew exactly how to lift her so that we did not cause more damage than what she already had. She had passed out. 
But pity, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, is the person who falls and no one rushes to pick them up. Friends protect each other. Finally, he says, friends strengthen each other. Verse 11, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Verse 12, though one may be overpowered, though one person alone may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. How many parents here who, if you knew your kids, were going to a place where you were concerned for their safety? First of all, you'd probably discourage them from going. But if they had to go, how many of us would feel a lot better if someone was with them? At least one other person or two people. Why? Because they're safer. Because if anybody is, who is dangerous is going to be out there, chances are they're not going to attack somebody who's not alone. When two or more people are together, they strengthen each other. They even give the perception of being stronger. It's amazing that researchers are only recently, really, starting to pay attention to the importance of friendship and social networks. There was in Australia a 10-year study that found that older people, older people with a large circle of friends were 22% less likely to die during the study period than those who had fewer friends. A 2007 study showed an increase of nearly 60% in the risk of obesity among people whose friends gained weight. In other words, if you had close friends and those friends gained weight, you're, you're more likely to gain weight. The impact, positive and negative, of friends. Last year, Harvard researchers at Harvard University reported that strong social ties promote brain health as we age. One... Uh, One social psychologist, Karen Roberto, said this. She said, people with stronger friendship networks feel like there is someone they can turn to. Friendship, she says, is an undervalued resource. And then then this is the key thing that I want to leave you with. She says this. She says, the consistent message of all these studies is that friends make your life better. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes found in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Now, he didn't say to us that having friends alone is enough. And not only is having friends alone not enough, it doesn't replace a relationship with the Lord. But when we have first and foremost a relationship with the Lord, that begins with receiving Him as our Savior and Lord, and we're walking with Him in communion on a daily basis. When you add to that priority close, positive, God-fearing relationships, my friend, you cannot escape the conclusion that you're on a good path. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, As we have prayed so many times since we started this friend series the first Sunday in February, God, make us better friends. 
Lord, help us to be the kind of friend who will pick our friend up when he or she falls. Help us to be that extra strand that strengthens a single strand cord into a threefold or fourfold or fivefold strand. Lord, help us to be the kind of friends to others that we so desperately recognize that we need ourselves. And Lord, help us to seek out friends who can help us in our relationship with you and help us through the struggles of life. And Lord, we would be so remiss if we didn't thank you for being the very best friend we've ever had in our lives. The friend who sticks closer than a brother, the friend who laid down your life for us, the friend who took our place on a cross that was laden with our sins. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.